Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Clues. Underwear drawers... They're not organized. They're like the the Wild West, the final frontier of wardrobes. Mm. And there's no rhyme or reason to them. Y- you got ones that are super old, uh, different brands, etc. You don't know what to expect. But now I have felt the buttery soft comfort of me undies. And now I want to replace the whole drawer with me undies because those are my now go-to. I'm currently wearing their long sleeve shirt and my, um, <laughs> which is not what this uh, ad is about, but I am also wearing the super soft, sustainable modal fabric thong with no roll black waistband. You want that. You don't want it to be rolling. You don't want it to be showing. And I'm hooked. I don't want to wear anything else. It's all got to go now. Well, this ad actually is kind of about that pace case. Everybody knows MeUndies <laughs> makes great underwear. It's in the name, MeUndies. But it's not just about underwear. You can explore the lounge collection featuring comfy joggers, hoodies, onesies, and a whole bunch more. And their Move Me activewear collection is the softest activewear on the market. There's no doubt about it. Right now, you can get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash roses. That's MeUndies.com slash roses for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies, comfort from the outside in. This episode is sponsored by R.W. Knutson Organic Just Tart Cherry Juice, a welcome addition to anyone's sleep routine. Pace Case, if you know me, and you do, mm-hmm. you know that I'm yep. working all hours of the day, all hours of the night. Mm-hmm. So the sleep that I do get has to be very good sleep. And I'm always looking for ways to up my sleep routine. Sometimes I'll read a book to go to sleep. Sometimes mm-hmm. I'll- Oh, The Bachelor? Uh, that book keeps me very awake. It's very engaging. That never puts me to sleep. Mm. I will sometimes just put down my cell phone after a long day of looking at a screen. It's nice to get some time away from the screen. I also will incorporate some R.W. Knutson Organic Just Tart Cherry Juice. It truly makes you go to sleep a little easier. It's the thing you need to help you drift off into the dreamland. Mm. As more and more people are looking to prioritize sleep, Organic Just Tart Cherry is having a moment thanks to Tart Cherry's potential sleep-related benefits and potential to aid in muscle recovery when you get those gains like clues. We're seeing this in the viral sleepy girl mocktail trend on social media. R.W. Knutson has a whole lineup of natural juices with zero added sugar, so you can feel good about adding them to your wellness routine. It's all about celebrating those daily wins. 
Organic Just Tart Cherry Juice is made from tart cherries, which may help you get a better night's sleep because they have natural melatonin. R.W. Knudsen crushes only 100% real ingredients, so you can crush everything you do. Pick up a bottle at your local grocery store today. It's the Game of Roses. Welcome to the Game of Roses. This is the Game of Roses. Welcome to Game of Roses. This is Pace Case. This is Bachelor Clues. And for today's episode, we're going to do something very interesting. Something we probably (laughs) should have done a long time ago, but we didn't even realize it was happening to us. We're in the pit. We both know that. Everyone listening knows Beautiful dark place. But we've never formally welcomed each other to the pit because we've been digging it the whole time. We've literally been at the bottom of the pit for as long as the pit has existed, even when it was just a small hole. We were the ones standing in that hole, digging that hole. Mm -hmm. We were never aware that the pit was forming around us. But now that we know, now that we're down at the bottom of it, looking back up, we've spent a year and a half down here. We thought... (laughs) We should welcome each other to our home. Yeah. Welcome, Clues. Welcome to the pit. Welcome, Pace Case. Welcome to the pit. We've been here, it seems like, forever. I know that's not the case, but it feels like that. Maybe the pit has been in us forever. But today... Hundreds of episodes we've done. Have we done hundreds? I don't know. (laughs) We've done over 100 for sure. I don't think we've reached 200 yet. Yeah, that's hundreds. Over 100 is hundreds. Okay. One point something hundred, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not the sure math exactly. is foggy down here at the bottom of the pit. <laughs> but we thought today we would uh, take the opportunity to really kind of like ask each other the questions that we normally ask people when we welcome them to the pit about our relationship with entertainment, reality television, social media. How we became pit dwellers. How we started digging the fucking pit even in the first place. It's something that I have lost sight of for sure because we're so deep down in it that I don't... Some of the memories We've are definitely even lost sight of a lot of stuff. <laughs> Our humanity, for example. Yeah. Who we used to be, the dreams we used to have, our goals, friends, family... The daylight. Sense of time and space. All of those things are gone now, replaced by the cold darkness of these damp walls of the pit. But that said, uh, we're going to examine now how we got down here, and we're just going to kind of interview each other about all of it. I think this is going to be fascinating. Mm -hmm. For me, it's going to be fucking fascinating for sure. I'm curious to ask you all this stuff. So (laughs) with that said, this is... Welcome to the pit. All right, Pace Case, you know how this shit works. We got to start at the beginning. Now I'm seeing what we do to everyone. (laughs) You're like terrified. You're like, I'm quitting the podcast. This is it. All I need to do is see your eyes when you started talking that question. Okay. Clues. Yes. 
Let's start at the beginning. Baby Clues. Clues Baby. Clues Baby 1929? You son of a bitch. I was (laughs) born in 1995. I'm 26 years old. Okay? Oh, my God. (laughs) Wow. It's good we did this. I am learning a lot already. Yeah, I'm younger than you. You didn't even know. No, that's not true. Where were you born? I was born in Spokane, Washington, on an Air Force base called Fairchild Air Force Base. My father was in the Air Force. He was there on a GI Bill. He did, I believe, two years. And then he and my mother went back to college, got their degrees, and have lived a good life ever since. Although they are in their own pit now, QAnon. Your dad was in the Air Force? Yes. What did he do? Uh, to my knowledge, he would fuel up planes on this Air Force base. It was during the time of Vietnam, but he mm. was never formally in that war. 1976 was the year, by the way, that I was born. A bicentennial baby. Oh. How about 70s, yourself? 70s, I hear good things. Oh, it was great. I have no memory of it whatsoever. How about yourself? When and where were you born? I was born in the 80s. In San Francisco, California. Oh, that's cool. The Bay Area. I lived there the first year of my life and experienced a great earthquake in that time. Well, actually, we were living in Oakland and we were across the bridge during the earthquake and the bridge collapsed and apparently we spent the night in a bank. Weird. Yeah. Do you have any memory of that? No, I don't have memory before like 13. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You're like, I was born in the 80s. My first memory was a Taylor Swift concert, 2014. Yeah. God, I wish. That's when my conscious life began. Um, I know. I just, I experienced a Taylor Swift concert and I just actively decided to just forget everything before. So that would be the first one. Okay, fair. That's fair. So... You're growing up in, did you guys move to LA? No, we moved to Connecticut. So I spent then my childhood in Connecticut. And what were you watching? What were your parents watching? What kind of media was in your childhood life? I was really into My Little Ponies Mm -hmm. and the Muppet Christmas movie. I watched that Mm -hmm. shit when I was sick. Over and over, VHS tapes that were recorded. But like, were you watching MTV? And what years? These were early no. 80s, mid 80s, 90s? Late 80s, early 90s. Were you watching any like network television, any sitcoms, any hour long? So the first, what I consider adult shows, not pony related, were... Uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, mm. super into Buffy, and Friends. I've obviously heard of Friends. Yeah, those I would watch with my family. Gilmore Girls, too. Okay. And do you remember the first reality TV you watched? The Bachelor. <laughs> no, it was not. <laughs> yeah. Are you fucking serious? I am serious. I am... I watched The Bachelor, and I never stopped watching The Bachelor, and I told myself I'm not allowed to watch any other reality TV because I was so into it. 
what the fuck? You yeah. never watched like Real World? You never watched no. Road Rules? I mean, I watched Real World after we became friends. Yeah. <laughs> but you didn't watch it like as it was airing. That's fucking fascinating. The Bachelor was your first reality anything? Yes. Holy fuck. Yeah, I was 12. Shit. No. So much of this makes sense to me now. Everything is starting <laughs> to snap into it place. It was my only my only guilty pleasure and I was like I just knew that once I watched other reality shows it would open the floodgates and guess what that's exactly what happened. <laughs> now I watch fucking everything. You tried your best to stave off the other it reality my, shows but they got to you. Yeah, it was like my oh, gateway fuck. drug and I knew I can't op- I can open the gate a little bit. Um, what was yours? What were your first first TV shows? I have extremely early memories of watching everything. My family was a big <laughs> TV family, and they had no regulator on what I could watch. I was the oldest child. I, ha- I have a younger sister who's four years younger than me. But for both of us, even as she was born and started growing up, like my parents just didn't. You could watch anything. Rated R. Wow. It didn't fucking matter. We had HBO, Showtime when that came out, et cetera, et cetera. God, I loved fucking HBO. I remember the old... Even if the shows didn't have Christianity or anything in them? Yeah, my parents weren't as like conservative and right-wing as they are. They were never very religious. We went to church and stuff when I was a kid, but like somewhere around junior high for me, that kind of fell out. Like My parents stopped going, and it was just like, whatever. But they never gave a fuck about what we watched. I mean, my dad would like take me to fucking Sylvester Stallone and Schwarzenegger movies where people are getting, like, getting blown up and heads chopped off and shit mm. like that. They didn't really fucking care. Even sexual shit, like, they didn't care that much. It was a little awkward to watch that type of shit with your parents, like a basic instinct or something. But like, they didn't give a fuck. We could still watch it. So I watched everything. Mm. This when- is a lesson to parents throughout the world. <laughs> Yeah, if you want a bachelor expert as a child. (laughs) If you want a bachelor expert, baby. (laughs) But it was basically like as long as I played sports and made straight A's, which I did my entire academic career, you can watch whatever you want. You could do whatever you want, play video games, any of that shit. And I did it all, anytime. I was not doing homework or on the fucking baseball field. I was glued to television taking it Mm. all in as much as I could at all times. Uh, MTV was a staple for me through its entire iteration. I remember when MTV came out the first year it was on television. You had to call your fucking cable station. We were living at the time in uh, Amarillo, Texas. And our cable carrier, there were two cable carriers in Amarillo. Ours did not have MTV. A friend of mine who lived down the street, Chris Houchin, had fucking MTV. I lived at his home. Like, I, <laughs> I was just fucking there every day, knocking Wait, on the door. Hey, can we watch MTV? Why were you so into MTV? Because it was, it was a, a tectonic shift in what that form of entertainment was. Even as a kid, it was like there was just nothing like it anywhere. First of all, music videos, they didn't exist anywhere else. That format. That medium Mm. was, I mean, it wasn't new. They had been around since like the 60s and 70s, technically, like record companies would make these little videos to promote certain songs and stuff, but they were largely just circulated within the music industry to other A&R people or radio people or whoever to try and get them to play the song. 
music video as art, where the video itself was the primary piece of media you were making, did not exist until MTV. And it was fucking mind-blowing. And especially in those early years, when you started to see a tours of the genre, like Michael Jackson, Madonna, when they were doing high, high concept, high production value music videos, those like Thriller, the Thriller music video mm-hmm. is still to this day one of the greatest pieces of media ever made. So I was enamored with that, with music videos, short form video content. Also, were you playing the, uh, music? Not at all. I mean, I liked music mm. and I had, uh, I remember at the time I was really like keyed into the patterns and songs and stuff. And I would always force my family into these games whenever we were in the car, where when a song would come <laughs> on the radio, you had like, who could name it the fastest basically. And because at the time the <laughs> TV had, um, it had in the lower left corner, they would have the name of the song, the artist, the album. And I believe like the year it came out or, or, or no, the record label. And, and eventually it was even the director, but I had memorized all those little pieces of information. And so we'd be in the car and within two or three notes, this is in the early eighties, I would fucking get every song, the album it was on, the artist, the fucking year it came oh out, whatever. God. I just pop, pop out like a little fucking computer. I'm sure my parents hated this it. This is but... all making a lot of sense too. Yeah. So, uh, (laughs) that for me, MTV for me was a huge piece of kind of my media education as it was coming out in the early eighties. So was HBO though. And HBO in the early eighties didn't have original programming. They just played movies that were like, you know, Mm. a year or two out of a movie theater or whatever. But they also had this graphic thing they made that would play before every movie. And it was like a little a model of a town that they built and it had this big chrome HBO logo that would fly in like over the town and it had this song that song that little fucking short video that they made is fucking burned into my brain burned into See I feel like I have a different version burned into my brain the crackly one the crackly one where it's on a like gray and white blinking screen yes the tv's coming on that's that's the later one for sure but those logos and kind of like the branding mtv's logo obviously was like a huge fucking deal it was very like counterculture it was like a graffiti tv over m um all those things were like very important to me there was obviously after school cartoons we're looking at gi joe transformers he-man my sister at that time was old enough that she was watching TV as well, so I would also watch with her Gem and the Holograms, She-Ra, things of this nature. Those were extremely influential, but uh, the biggest influence, I think, on me, media-wise, had to have been action movies. Schwarzenegger, Stallone, that was like Van Damme, mm-hmm. late 80s, early was 90s. Was that because that was how you bonded with your father? Um... No, we bonded over baseball primarily. Hmm. Those were just my favorite movies because they were like superheroes and it was just endless machine guns and people fucking just getting wrecked. I loved that <laughs> shit as a kid. <laughs> fucking loved it. Commando, Predator, all that shit. Loved it. Did you have like fake guns and like play this shit out with your friends? Yeah. Absolutely. Fake guns? Fuck, we had BB guns we'd shoot each other with. Oh, God. You know, every fucking month or so, you'd be like digging a BB <laughs> out of your arm and shit. I'm like, oh, fuck, he really got me. 
It was just what I mean. This was like growing up in fucking Texas as a ten-year-old boy. You know what I mean? This hey, I heard was. about Texas in the seventies from our dark lord. But uh, <laughs> no, media-wise, that's that's kind of primarily what I was tuned into, and because I was so into MTV when Real World came on for the first time, I believe it was nineteen ninety-four or nineteen ninety-two. Fuck, what was it? I was in high school, early years of high school when it came out, and it was just fucking like staggering to me 1992 yeah so i would have been a freshman in high school i think or a sophomore maybe and it was uh <laughs> i mean you just didn't you couldn't believe what you were seeing you could not believe mm-hmm. this was a real fucking show because it was reality tv before the industry of reality tv had taken hold these really were six people put in this fucking house and it was all for TRR because they didn't know they were going to be famous. There wasn't the ability to Mm -hmm. be an influencer or to have any kind of benefit after the show. They didn't even know if the show was going to work or not. And obviously it spawned fucking 20 plus seasons after that or whatever. But in that first iteration of it, and even in the second and third, when people started to go on it to be famous, um, it was just something so different from anything you'd ever seen. And there were obviously reality shows before that. PBS did one. Um, this American Family, it was called, I believe, about the Loud family. That was just like a, a docu-series about this family. The, I mean, Real World was just, it was something else because it was also the way it was presented. It was presented in an MTV style. Quick, frenetic cuts, interesting titles, weird zooms, as was the the style of that time. You know, the 90s, like, music video style. The show looked like a 90s music video. So it is, like, forever, like, uh, reflecting that time. It was just such a an interesting piece of media. And I was immediately hooked on reality television. Immediately. Mm-hmm. I watched every other season of Real World. They came out with a thing called Road Rules that was, like, a real-world type show, but the kids were in these rvs and they would go cross country and compete in these games then there was real world versus road rules where they would bring them all together <laughs> and compete against all this shit i fucking loved it loved every second of it and then in the early 2000s when like survivor obviously bachelor all big brother all those shows started popping i would like watch at least the first season of every one of them mm-hmm. and um Obviously, I've been watching fucking reality TV ever since. Here we are. <laughs> did you ever think? Did you ever think about going on one of those shows? I fucking made a tape for Real World. <gasps> Shut up. Yep. How do we get that tape? What did you do? Never. You're never getting it. This was before. It was a fucking physical piece of tape. It was a high eight tape <laughs> shot on a fucking camcorder. <laughs> A scroll. I had to mail into the producers. There's no like digital version of it. You, it's <sighs> gone forever. It's so Damn even it. if it exists still. I'm sure they throw those tapes out or whatever. But um, wait, what was your tape? What did you do? It. I direct addressed the camera. Parasocial gaze. Nice. Yeah, this is when I. It was the year I graduated college, so I was you know whatever 21. I think. Yeah. And um, I was like, fuck it, I want to go on a real world. And there's an age limit. Like when you're, I think 24 was the oldest you could be to apply. So I was like right in that sweet spot. And uh, I 
did a parasocial gaze, direct addressing the camera in my shitty little bedroom in this fucking apartment that I lived with my friend. God damn it. This is bringing back some crazy ass memories. I had not thought about this in a minute. I can't believe this hasn't come up. <laughs> Neither can I. But yeah, I basically was direct addressing the camera in the beginning. I tried to give it some production value. And so I was like, my name mm -hmm. is this, and this is kind of where I grew up and whatever. Here's some of the stuff that I like to do. And then I had like a couple other things where I went out in the city. I remember I went to the gym where I worked out. I'm like, this is where I work out. It's LA Fitness. Here's you know? my paint cans. <laughs> <laughs> this is pre-paint cans. But uh, yeah, I, I just kind of like went around the city, showed the things I did. I talked a little bit about who my parents were and how they were super conservative. And I was not because I know that that's Ooh. like, that's a thing they've. Fun dynamic. Point, yeah. They had used that in other seasons with some other players. Yeah, I sent in my little fucking tape. Never heard back. And that was that. God, what's that alt universe? <laughs> Clues went on real world. You're now like a reality TV star monster. <laughs> I had a couple of chances to become a reality TV star monster. I was the host of a show for a now, I mean, long defunct internet network called Digital Entertainment Network. This was in 1999. They were going to be poised to be the first online television network. And it was before broadband mm, ahead existed. Ahead of their time. Very ahead of their time. And they ended in ruin because the guys who ran the company embezzled. They had like Pepsi, Blockbuster, Pennzoil, huge backers of this company. And the guys who ran it embezzled all the money, bought mansions, threw giant cocaine parties. <laughs> and I think one of them is now has fled the country under... Um, child sex oh trafficking God. charges or some shit oh, so no. it was like it all ended in ruin but i hosted one of their shows for that glorious year and that was pretty interesting and wait uh, what was it what was the show it was called dented and they made me dress in a like hazmat suit and interview like circus sideshow performers and weird people and that you know these were little like 10 minute episodes basically that you could download if you had a modem that was fast enough, <laughs> which no one did. Oh my God. That was another part that was like, yeah, this would be really cool if we had the internet of today, but we didn't right. in 1999, obviously. Wow. So you were a tot host. I was a tot host. And then I also sold a show to VH1 in my very early career. That was a reality show that starred me and my friends and it was called Posers. And the idea of it was, if you pretend like you're famous in LA, you're fucking famous. And so we would go out to bars and, you know, fucking clubs, whatever, and be like, oh yeah, I'm in Maroon 5. I'm the bass player. People <laughs> fucking know who the bass player from Maroon 5 is, so they'd let oh, us so in and get drinks and whatever. Totally worked. And we sold that as a concept to VH1 and we got to shoot a pilot and it was very funny, very good. And then uh, they wound up not picking it up. But the whole show was going to be about me and kind of my shitbag friends pretending to be famous in various scenarios and seeing how far we could get with it. Like, could we wow. throw out the opening pitch at a fucking Major League Baseball game by saying, I'm Leonardo DiCaprio? And it's like, you show up I'm and it's like, Leonardo. you're clearly not Leonardo DiCaprio, but if you act like him, are you? Like, how far can you take that type of bravado? You wow. Know? What is the nature of I fame? think you can take it pretty far. Yeah, that's what we were finding out. So anyway, that is the long and short of my childhood relationship with reality television and all types of media. Wow. Now let's move into something else. Social media. 
when did you get your first cell phone and what was your first <laughs> social what was your first cell phone let me ask you that my my first cell phone was a sidekick the little it had the little flip screen and that was probably also my first compulsive action that I did and I would just flip that thing all fucking day it was extremely satisfying made a very satisfying noise and physical gesture but yeah that was my first phone I was late I remember everyone had phones before me and I was late to the scene, but I came in with a splash with the Sidekick. Sidekick had full keyboard. It was like, it mm-hmm. wasn't a smartphone, but it was like, it was not just a cell phone. That's to me, <laughs> I mean, it's like, you are too old to have had your first phone be a smartphone, but you were, you're young enough that it wasn't like, my first cell phone was a fucking, the old Nokia that had snake on it. You know, and that it was, was it. a smartphone. I think it had the internet on it. But I mean, it didn't have like a touch screen. The apps didn't exist yet. Sure. Now I'm looking at pictures of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my first cell phone was just you could do phone calls on it and you could fucking send text message if you knew how to do the nine key where you'd have to press like the middle button three yeah. times to get a K or whatever. I've had phones like that since, but yeah. Okay. Now I'm looking at this. I do think I did bedazzle mine. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So uh, what was, what was your first phone? God damn. I don't even know the brand. Samsung, maybe a two Oh nine or something. I mean, this is like predates even, the idea of branding the internet? a fucking not quite the internet. I got my first cell phone, I believe, in the year two thousand and two or one. I was a little bit late to it as well, but even then, as long ago as that was, you know, there was no nothing even remotely approaching a smartphone level of anything. So what was your first social media? I mean, would you count AOL Instant Messenger? That, I would say, was the defining, like, way that I interacted with my peers. Mm -hmm. AIM, my friend and I went into AOL chat rooms for a while, and we ended up um, catfishing someone. A man who, I mean, he could have been catfishing as well, but he said he was in the army, and he was an adult, (laughs) and we were 12. And we Googled pictures of a beautiful woman and we sent them to him and said that was us. <laughs> Did you ever release him from the catfish hook? Did you ever tell him? I mean, I think we, I, I'm guessing we inevitably ghosted. I definitely don't yeah. think we came clean and said, actually, we're children. Right. We would make AOL instant messenger profiles. Sometimes people would <laughs> use those to... For various means, my friend pretty much wrote a love letter to a boy in our class in her AOL profile. Didn't go over well. <laughs> but that's like where I learned to type. Mm-hmm. I feel like I became very good at typing because of AOL Instant Messenger. But no, my first like what we think of as social media, I would say is MySpace. 
I only had it for a little bit, though. Facebook was quick, quick on it. MySpace was my first one as well. Or Friendster, whatever was first. I had them both, but whatever one came out first was my first one. I don't know which one mm. beat the other one. I think it might have been Friendster. Friendster. I think that might have beat MySpace. What was Friendster? How different the world could have been if any of these things had become Facebook. I know, right? Instead, we get the we get to live out the one where fucking Mark Zuckerberg is in charge of everything. <laughs> you got your MySpace. You got your mm-hmm. sidekick. You graduate from college. Where did you go to school, by the way? I went to UC Berkeley. Oh. In the Bay it. Area. Mm-hmm. And what'd you major in? Majored in psychology. I was pre-med for a year. No shit. I thought maybe I would pursue that. I liked the idea of doing a job that had something to do with like helping humanity. (laughs) (laughs) You're saying that literally as we are standing in pitch darkness at the bottom of the pit. I mean, to be fair, I like to think that we are helping in some way, you know, we're providing a piece of entertainment that's getting people through COVID. Okay. And whatever. What? (laughs) Come on. Give me this. Uh, No, I I decided I was going to go study abroad for a semester and I would decide whether I wanted to pursue a post back after that, Mm -hmm. after I got back from Rome and I... Once I got back, I was not, not convinced. Yeah. You need a lot of dedication to do it. Like our friend Erica, mm-hmm. who's now going to be a doctor. So you switched over to psychology. Well, yeah, that was my major. But I don't, I didn't pursue that as a career. <laughs> not yet. And then you graduated. And what did you decide to do upon graduation? I. Moved back to LA and was like, I'm going to go. My second choice in the back of my mind was always TV writing. I had done some playwriting in high school. And I always just thought that would be like (laughs) the most fun possible career would be to work in like TV comedy. And in some ways it kind of is. Yeah, I agree with that. Um. So I went and I worked at a talent agency for two to three years, two and a half years, maybe, which is a talent agency is basically a company that has a bunch of agents and they rep writers, directors, actors, et cetera. Um, and I worked as an agency assistant where you start in the mailroom and then you work as an assistant on these desks and you're basically answering phones, doing emails, et cetera. Um, And then I wound up working for a woman who was a TV lit agent, which means they rep TV writers. And I told all of her clients, I was like, I don't want to be here. I want to be a writer's assistant. And then one of them, the lovely Liz Brixius, (laughs) saved me and got a job show running bad judge and she i think she wrote me she had me being the writer's assistant written into her contract to 
to go on the show. And I was like, this is amazing. I, you know, generally there's sort of an order where you're a writer's, where you're a PA and then you're a writer's PA and then you're a writer's assistant. So I was able to leap over a couple of those things um, when I started at Bad Judge, where I met Chad. <laughs> That's crazy. I didn't know that was your first job. Because I was so good at it. <laughs> well, I didn't know, like, I don't know the whole history of how you came to it. I know Liz obviously gave you that job. But uh, I also bypassed certain, like, the hierarchy, that ladder that you have to kind of climb in TV. There is this very, like, boys clubby, like, you have to come in mm-hmm. and pay your dues and work your way up the ladder. And I didn't really do that either. But um, it never appealed to me, I suppose. At any rate. Um, you're watching The Bachelor during all of this, even while you're in college, right? Like, what you watched season one. Yeah. When you were, whatever, yeah. 12 or something. Yeah, watched season 12, I mean, season one live when I was 12. Mm-hmm. With my mother. I watched it live when I was not 12. 20-something. 20 <laughs> <laughs> 24, something like that. Yeah, watched since the beginning. I maybe missed a couple seasons in college. I feel like I missed like Matt Grant or something. Yeah. Um, There there was definitely a big chunk that I missed after watching it out of just kind of like general interest in reality TV. I kind of fell off. I was like, all right, I get this. And then every once in a while, a girlfriend would want to watch a season and I'd be like, okay, I can get back into this with her. And we watch it together for a little while. And I was, on and off it was always with, there yeah it was always in the, in the background. background it was always <laughs> there i was aware of it but it mm-hmm. wasn't until you and i started watching it together that the pit started to get dug for me i was a v- extremely casual fan of the show because i like you i went to college i went to usc graduated in 1999 went to film school all i ever really wanted to do what was did like you make- study TV movie or it was really movies. They didn't have much of a TV thing when I was there. They kind of shit on TV and like poo pooed it a little bit. It was like this is a film school. You have to be an auteur filmmaker and you're going to study Robert Zemeckis and Steven Spielberg. And it was like, uh, I kind of want to make like hard R-rated comedies. Is that something <laughs> we could do here? And they like they didn't like that kind of shit. You know, they didn't like anything that was mm. uh, not reverential to the art of film. Certainly, reality do you recommend TV film was not school. Allowed. I don't know what it's like now. I mean, this was in 1999. It may be way better. I don't recommend time traveling to 1999 and doing it. It was like an mm. interesting four years. USC ain't a cheap school, so I graduated with some debt for sure. And I'm like, does film school, a degree in cinema television, get you a job in the film industry? Uh-uh, not at all. You still have to figure all that shit out on your own <laughs> for sure. Wait. You know. I feel like we skipped a chunk. How did you go from your uh, TV-loving child to when did you realize that you were different from your parents? <laughs> very early on. I, like my, I had very strong early indoctrination into sports, and I w- it was mandatory to play sports constantly. And Baseball? all of them until I went into high school. Then my dad allowed me to specialize and I chose baseball because I was like, um, at that point, you know, kids were getting fucking big, like, Mm -hmm. especially in Texas playing football at a 
5A school, which is like the biggest population school, which means you have the best players and all that kind of shit. Like one of the high schools I went to won the Texas 5A state championship twice out of the t- like three year period I was there. Is that like Friday Night Light? Yeah, that's like Friday Night okay. Light shit. Taken, I mean, it's like a fucking religion. And I played cornerback because I was like, you know, five, probably six, seven in high school, something like that. And there were dudes out there who were like six, five, fucking 240 pounds of solid rock muscle. And so they're like, well, he's mm. fast. And like, I did have good eye hand. Like I was pretty athletic. So I was able to make the team as a cornerback. So I was like on defense, that's the guy who's outside basically on the edges and you, you track the wide receivers. You can keep up with them and you try to stop them from catching passes and stuff. I just remember I'm picturing being a very game. funny comedy scene of you trying to explain like, you're like, yeah, I play football. I'm a cornerback. And they're like, quarterback. And they're like, cornerback. Yeah. You have to make sure you really pronounce the end in that cornerback. <laughs> so I just remember one game. I was out in my position on the right side of the field. And I'm a uh, wide receiver, like fucking busts off the line hard. And I'm like, shit, he's going deep. So I'm backpedaling. And then he just does like a perfect fucking stops on a dime and turns around a little button hook pattern. And I'm maybe 10 yards off of him at this point. Cause I was anticipating a deep run. I fucked up totally. He turns around quarterback, throws it to him. He catches it. And then he turns back around to me. He's now going to try and run as far as he can. My job is to tackle him. So I just mm-hmm. fucking, I run at him. I put my head down and my shoulder into him and I try to tackle him and his fucking, it wasn't even a helmet to helmet, his knee as he's running, just his, and this guy was like twice my fucking size, his knee hits my fucking helmet and I'm just like, Kong! it felt like I got hit in the head with a fucking sledgehammer. I fly back oh, on my God. back, he runs over me and I, he didn't end up scoring like our free safety got him or whatever, but I was just like, uh, I don't know if I can do this one anymore. Like, I don't know if this is the best <laughs> That wasn't a me. pleasant experience. <laughs> yeah, and then I, I stopped playing football that year and just like, you know, went into baseball where it was like people aren't actively trying to beat the shit out of you. You might get hurt, like twist an ankle or something, but like you don't have to do physical combat with people who are twice your size. So <laughs> I focused on baseball and my dad had like big dreams of me being a professional athlete. Meanwhile, he cursed me with the genetics that i have and it's like i don't think there's like a five (laughs) nine dude who's gonna be playing baseball professionally at this point so i was like well what am i gonna do with my life and the things i love are media it's like movies tv shows writing painting making art i knew that like somehow that was going to be what i wanted to do and directing really kind of combines all of that like photography storytelling all Mm. that type of shit So I was like, I'll go to film school. USC was one of the best in the country. I applied. I got in. I came out here. And your parents were, what did they think about that? Uh, They were supportive of it, certainly. You know, sad to see me leave leave Texas and go to fucking Los Angeles, but they were were cool with it. Yeah, then you get out here, which I think like 90% of trying to work in the entertainment industry is fucking moving to LA. And so I had already unbeknownst to me i had done the hard part that four years in college out here like it really acclimates you it's like when you're putting a fucking new goldfish into the goldfish bowl and you leave it in the plastic bag for a little while so it can get used to the water that's what i feel like usc was for me then i graduated Mm -hmm. and figured out like okay just like you it's like you got to get an assistant job an assistant job at an agency is like one of the best things you can do to kind of learn how the whole industry works and see it from every angle 
I got an assistant job at, um, God, I had so many. I got one at E Entertainment Television working on an old <sighs> show called Celebrity Profile, which got canceled wow. while I was on it. <laughs> so that job ended. <laughs> I had a job as an assistant at Leonardo DiCaprio's production company for a little while because he wanted to do an online film festival. This is in the early 2000s. And it was like, that didn't, that was not possible to do again because there was no broadband internet mm -hmm. yet. It was a little ahead of its time. So that collapsed. And then I wound up getting a job at this advertising agency who did like a lot of DVD work. And that was my last real job before I started selling TV shows. The first one of which was um, that Posers show, that reality show. I sold that to VH1. That went nowhere. And then roughly in the same time, my, the manuscript from my first book, Average American Male, sold as a TV show to Showtime with George Clooney and his production company attached. And then I began the long education of what Hollywood does to things that people write, which is completely <laughs> destroy them. And I just kept selling TV shows and movies and stuff, and some got made, some didn't, most didn't, but it was enough to pay the bills. And then eventually wound up on Bad Judge, which is the only show I've ever had on the air. And uh, we met, obviously. Mm -hmm. Started talking about Bachelor a little bit, both at that time casual fans. And then we started watching <laughs> it together. And unbeknownst to us, whatever that it was, I went back and looked through my memes. My first memes are from the after the final rose of Andy Dorfman's season. And so okay. you and I that is. probably started watching it in one Pablo season together, I think. That is 2014, Andy Dorfman. Yeah. God, what year is it now? 2021? So yeah. that's... Seven years we've been doing it. Seven years. And we've been doing this podcast for a year and a half. Once we got to the podcast level of the pit, that was a year and a half ago. <laughs> Like the rings of hell. Let me ask you this. We've given our histories here, I think a very detailed history of all mm -hmm. of our media education and our relationship with reality television. Was there a moment for you where you were like, oh, fuck, this is taking hold of me, this Bachelor thing? Do you remember when that moment was? Yeah. <laughs> uh. I started, I worked on a series of shows after Bad Judge um, as a writer's assistant and script coordinator, which are like the lowest levels of the writing staff, basically. You're taking notes for all of the writers. You're in charge of the scripts and distributing them to whoever they need to be distributed to. You're proofreading. Ideally, on, in a good working environment show, you're pitching jokes as well because it's basically the starter career for a staff writer level job, which is the lowest level writer. And at one point, my, my, friend, my friend was working at Funny or Die and she said they need someone to do the Bachelor recaps. You watch The Bachelor, right? You're into it. I was like, yes. So I started doing recaps on my own of the show, and then I got the job as the writer's assistant on The Good Place, NBC, half-hour comedy. And so 
that was taking all of my time. I could no longer do, you know, be hired by Funny or Die or anything. And I had already been doing the recaps for a little bit. And I continued to do them Mm -hmm. (laughs) as I worked on The Good Place as just like a hobby. I had started to develop a fan base of like people who were reading them all the time. So I felt some level of responsibility. But it was this point where I was like, this isn't going to be my job. This isn't going to pay me. I'm still going to do it. Mm-hmm. And that was a very, and like, I'm not even sure it was an active decision. I just couldn't stop. <laughs> and yes. I was like, this is, to me, that moment is very crystallized in time of like, I don't know what stops this. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is a passion that is taking over. And it's like, I had a full-time job, but then I was also doing this, which I would like stay up all night the night after the show aired in order to write these long things. Yeah, that's the moment. (laughs) What's yours? Well, after Bad Judge, I worked on a bunch of other projects as well, sold some more TV shows. Another mutual friend of ours who also was on Bad Judge, where we all met, she and I wrote a movie that we sold together and we were going through the processes of, uh, you know, getting notes and doing rewrites and whatever. But somewhere, this is after you and I are watching it, obviously. Like, we're both kind mm-hmm. of, I don't know if it was because we were watching it together or if it was just coincidental that we both were kind of going down our own paths of obsession with it. Like, because when we would watch it together, you would be taking notes and doing your recaps. I would be compulsively photographing my TV screen. But then we were like, we weren't making media together about it yet. We were Mm -hmm. each kind of doing our own thing that was getting progressively more fucking insane. And for me, (laughs) around the same time your recap started fucking blowing up to like 10,000 words a piece with a million GIFs in them, I, I was like doing memes. And I was like, well, fuck it. Am I going to like my first meme? I went back and looked at it the other day. It's Dark Lord Harrison sitting in the chair at the after the final rose and he's doing air quotes. And I just put the words finding love in between his air quotes. Almost a a thesis for the entire like what we're doing now. But it has no graphic (laughs) treatment whatsoever. It's not like the blown out weird colors or anything like that. And at some point, I was like, I need to kick this up a notch. Let me figure out how to use all these graphics apps and shit and like let me develop a style for my memes and so i made a fucking another instagram account called nick vial though do you remember this (laughs) (laughs) of course just to practice making memes i was like i need basically like sketchbooks like when you're kind of first learning to do any kind of art, you just like start filling sketchbooks with as much shit as you can draw to like find your style and figure out how to draw things and whatever. I was like, I need a sketchbook. My sketchbook is going to be Nick Vial's Instagram account. I started with his first (laughs) image and my goal was I was going to take every one of his posts and turn them into memes in some way. And I never got all the way to the end. But I, fuck, I probably did 50 to 100 
of his images and then I would take them and do weird shit to them to, to learn how to meme basically on this other account. You did a lot of them. They were very good. They had a lot of the theme of second place, which I loved. <laughs> yeah, if any, I think that account still exists. If anybody wants to look at it, it's Nick Vial though. I haven't been on it in fucking years, but I remember laying in my bed at like 2 a.m. one night working on one of these Nick Vial memes and just being like, what in the fuck am I doing? What am I doing? <laughs> I don't know, but I can't stop doing it. And I, I knew in that moment when I was working on like my 30th Nick Vialdo meme, I was like, this shit, something is weird about this. It's taking hold of me in a way that I cannot control. And obviously it has become crazier since then, which is strange to say, <laughs> but here we now are. This episode is brought to you by FanDuel. Football is back. And the best bet you can make is downloading the FanDuel Sportsbook app. It doesn't matter if you're new to gambling or an old pro, FanDuel has something for everyone. And as an official sports betting partner of the NFL, you know your bets are safe. There's also never been a better time to use FanDuel because right now you'll get up to $1,000 back if your first bet doesn't win. You can even turn a small wager into a big payday with a same-game parlay bet. Just sign up with the promo code SPOTIFY to place your first bet risk-free on FanDuel Sportsbook. Download FanDuel today. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. This episode is brought to you by HP. Whenever you do your best thinking, the HP Spectre X360 is ready when inspiration strikes. With power save for battery life and focus mode to multitask, you can do your best thinking whenever and wherever it happens. You can't always schedule when and where you might have a brilliant thought, whether it's in the morning or before bed, when you're at your computer or away from it. Thinking can happen anywhere and anytime. The HP Spectre X360 2-in-1 Convertible PC with Windows 10 saves battery life for whenever an idea hits you. HP Spectre X360, a more thoughtful laptop. Did what has what has your family thought about you? I presumably they know you're super into the bachelor at this point. What do they think about that? They don't care. I, I mean, it's not like I'm not really around my family. I don't talk to them that much. They're just like, oh yeah, he watches the bachelor and does a podcast about it. Like to them, it's I don't think they give a shit really. It's more my friends that are the ones that are like, he does that bachelor shit. But some of them are okay with it, think it's funny. Some of them watch The Bachelor. I mean, shit, some of my friends, mm -hmm. like Joel, helps us figure out the technical shit to be able to do some yeah. of our, our things, you know? So it's like... We had Will on the podcast. Yeah, we had Will on the podcast. I don't... As, as strange as it is, I don't think it's been overtly detrimental to any of the relationships in my life. I think it is indulged by certain friends. Many friends find it funny that I'm, you know, have a fucking meet bachelor meme account that has whatever, 20,000 people looking at it and do this podcast. I mean, I think if anything, it's a, a point of humor for many of my friends. How have your friends and family reacted to this? I, my dad said some line one time, which was like, you're really going like a uh, full force on the bachelor thing or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> really leaning into that. And I was like, 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, I am. <laughs> I also, I mean, we had, we interviewed a couple of my friends on the Patreon, Sarah and Johanna, somewhat recently about the first time I was in the document when we went to see Women Tell All for Sean Lowe. And one of them, I maybe it was Johanna, she was like, I feel like you took your dream job when you were a child and like you are now doing that dream job of when we were 12 years old. Yeah. And like in a way, I guess that's true. I probably never thought of that as my potential job when I was 12, but it is one of my longest lasting obsessions. Like mm-hmm. I knew the power of it, thus me not watching other reality shows until you know what? I don't, I got to figure out when that floodgate opened. I think it was because of Erica, our friend who is going to be a doctor, made me watch Vanderpump Rules. And that was, that was really the floodgate opener. And then I watched all of Bravo. All the, I've now watched all the Housewives. During the pandemic, I caught up on <laughs> every single one. And I was like, I've watched them all. I thought there would always be another city for me. No. You ran out of cities. (laughs) (laughs) I ran out of cities. I've even watched the one New Zealand season where they it got canceled because one of the women said the N word. Do you remember when you started viewing it as a sport? There was a period where we we were watching the show still with other people. (laughs) Yeah. And I participated in a couple bachelor leagues where you're predicting who will win. Mm-hmm. You get points for whatever. The person would win a bottle of booze or something if you won the season. And so I feel like maybe that's the first iteration of that. I'm not sure. For me, it was Vial. When he came back a second time. <laughs> All roads lead back to Vial. I mean, in the modern era, I, or paradise era, I should say, they kind of do for me. When he came back on Caitlin Bristow's season, crashing in episode four, having sex with her pre-fantasy suite, I was like, what in the fuck am I watching here? This guy is in it to win it. Like, he's playing a game. That, for me solidified it from that moment on from his mm. second season with Caitlin Burso I only watched it as a sport I was like he can't be the only person who's playing this as a game and obviously there's always you know 4TWR talk in all the seasons and 4TR talk and all that but that was more used at least the way I perceived it as a kind of insult a way to invalidate some other person in the game like they're not here to really love you I am I still was kind of like keyed into that a little bit. Like, yeah, Hmm. that's right. They don't really care about this person. Then I started to understand like, no, that's the fundamental rule of the game is 4TR. That's the thing you can't break if you're playing it. And when I saw Nick Vial get second place twice, and then especially like come back on Paradise and become The Bachelor, I was like, fuck, this is a literal game. And that fucking guy just played it like I've never seen it played. And then it became overwhelming to me that's the only way i view it now and it's accurate like that's the the truth of it is not that i just view it as a game but that it is a fucking game and the show tries to hide that fact from you i feel like mine was slower 
it was you and I started doing this pattern recognition as we're watching and slowly started naming each of the different plays that were happening basically. Mm-hmm. And then once you do it enough and you see that there is this pattern and you see that people who do certain things always get ahead to me of course it's a sport you play it and you can win it and there's similar prizes and teams i'm a katie Cetera. This oh is a reference to the. I'm a the oh, we'll talk about this in Twibbon. Yeah, but Thursday we're gonna have some things to talk about. Yeah. Jesus Christ, I'm a Katie. Uh, Good one, guys. <laughs> now you and I have been critical of the show, obviously, for a wide variety of reasons. That there's an element to watching it once you kind of see through the curtain, that is a little bit of outrage at the things they do to the players, at the way they treat Mm -hmm. gender, race, sexuality. Did you ever derive pleasure from that? Was that like a part of why you liked to watch it ever? Was what? That it was problematic? Not that it was problematic, but that you could watch like, um, for me, like the Rachel Lindsay season with Lee Garrett is where the the pleasure of being like, I can't believe they're doing this to a player. Oh my God, these producers are assholes. There was a certain pleasure in that. Once it got to Rachel Lindsay season with Lee Garrett, I was like, oh Jesus, this is fucking dark shit. Yeah. This is not like funny in any way. And then it has obviously escalated. And I thought there was that like was a, definitely my turning point as well, of yeah. like, oh, this is like horrible what they're doing. Not that the shit they did before wasn't horrible, and we've obviously gone back and seen more of the seasons, mm-hmm. seen it through the lens of twenty twenty one, and doesn't hold up. But it also wasn't like specifically malicious. Like, yeah, two thousand eleven, both Bachelor. And Bachelorette, that entire year was all white. Yes, but they weren't actively casting people who were racist to start racist plots and use that as a dramatic piece of the season, like they did in Rachel Lindsay's season. That shit blew my mind. It was like using racism to sell crest white strips. And we're now in this thing where it's like, especially as we're writing the book and we're going back and looking at the history of all this. You thought, you felt for a moment, at least I did in Tasha's season of Bachelorette, that like, fuck, they're turning a corner. It's like, there's a black Bachelorette, a black Bachelor. They're letting Tasha and Ivan mm-hmm. not only have this conversation, but they're showing it on TV. They're keeping it in the fucking edit. And then we got season 25 and it all obviously fell apart. And I know that Tasha Ivan scene, I had such hope. I think when we were recapping it, we had such hope. Yeah. It seemed real. It seemed like the show was really changing. And at some point, as you and I were watching it as a sport, that extra piece of like the producers being shitty to the players, it was kind of like, yeah, it's part of the game. You have to be able to navigate whatever the producers are going to manipulate you and stuff. But it started to go from, for me anyway, being kind of like 
a fun, funny part of the show to something that was very dark and sinister. The like blinding corporate greed that would allow them to manipulate these people in terrible ways started to become very bad, like hard to watch. And I think for me, that's like where we are now. And I'm hopeful that Katie's season is going to turn the corner, have it be fun and stuff again, have it be like more Mm -hmm. of a pure game. But I was just curious for you, like what that moment was where the, you know, kind of the ability to point the finger at the producers and be like, you guys are fucking assholes. When that turned from being a little fun, like a interesting, funny element of the show to like, this shit is like, they're sinister. They're really malicious. Yeah, I think, I think the, the Lee Garrett thing, but then honestly this year, Bachelor Nation has always been somewhat toxic there has always been this element of like fence sitting on like racial issues on gender issues etc where like you know that their base audience may not have values that align with mine but this year really has brought it to the forefront and the I guess the vetting, the online vetting and investigation of players and stuff has reached this like kind of horrific level that like I don't even think we see with like politicians, people digging into them as much as what is happening to the bachelor players and it's just it has become this very, very toxic space, and I'm hoping there's some way to, yeah, to get back a little bit to, like, having more fun with the stuff and less, uh, less burn them at the stake vibes. (laughs) (laughs) I totally agree with you. Unfortunately, I don't think we're getting there. I think this is... No, it's just going to get worse. I don't see how you go back. Yeah. Because, I mean, we're guilty of it to some degree, too. We go through everybody's yeah. Instagram. We try to find whatever shit is on there. And it's like, that is a little bit a part of it. These players become public figures. And Bachelor Nation is, I think, more than probably any other professional sport, a piece of Bachelor Nation is this exact process. Of like, here's who all the players are. Find out everything about them. Go. Mm-hmm. That happens at the beginning of every season. And the longer a player lasts, the more gets dug up. And now people coming out on TikTok and saying, I knew this person in high school and they did this and they did this. So any interaction any of these people have ever had with anyone will be made part of the public record. And it has taken away some of the fun of the show for sure. I don't know if we get back. I, it's, it's weird. It's, a, it's an interesting time for the show. In a lot of different ways, we don't know who the host is. They're floundering in this weird middle ground of like, well, Tasha and Caitlin are going to not quite co-host. Like they don't have a formal <laughs> host title. And then who's going to do, do the next Who do you think season? should host? I think Sean Lowe is their only chance because he is a white heterosexual Christian man 
that will appease the same people who are like, you know, saying, I won't watch it if Chris Harrison doesn't host. Well, what about Sean Lowe? Would you watch that? Yes, they will. He also is the only Bachelor who is still married to his ring winner, who is a player of color. So he's checking a few boxes for both audiences. I don't think he checks enough of those boxes. I don't think they pick a white dude. Mm -hmm. Just given the fact that the reason for the replacement is what it is. Yeah. I think they would get too much backlash from the people that they're trying to appease with doing a replacement. Mm -hmm. Also, he hasn't, they haven't had him host anything. So I'd be surprised. I mean, he did that after show many years ago, but I'm just guessing there's a reason that they haven't tried to prop him up for this. I literally (laughs) wrote in my notes app the other night, (laughs) probably at 4 a.m., I said, I thought of good hosting for The Bachelor, Charlene Joint. (laughs) She'd be fucking great. I don't know. God. Here's the problem, and here's the thing the host has to have. The host has to be in on it. The host has to convey to the audience that they believe this show is about helping someone find love. Charlene Joint's already, that ship has sailed. We know she knows the inner workings and disagrees with them. I don't think you can have somebody who's like 4TWR at heart, which she is. At least in terms of the, hmm. the idea of the game. Sean Lowe embodies it. He's still married right. to his ring winner. The process works. I'm living proof. I think you've got to have somebody who's from outside the franchise or has benefited from it in exactly that way. Even Caitlin Bristow, Tasha can do it. It worked for her. She's still with her ring winner. Caitlin Bristow, it didn't quite work out the right way. She's not like a a true success story from the game. At this point, though, I feel like The Bachelor has decided that success story, they're like loosening the term of success stories and they'll now consider, you know, a Jason Tardick, Caitlin Bristow because they're both within the franchise. Yes, I agree. I mean, obviously they had them on Listen to Your Heart as judges. I mean, they bring back, you know, <laughs> uh, Jason and Molly you know, kind of inherent proof that the journey doesn't work <laughs> might yeah. lead you away from your soulmate. Yeah, I don't know. But I, we're in a strange limbo with what the show is right now. And it has to do with this question mark for the host. What the fuck is going on there? That is a huge piece of this show because the host gives yeah. it structure, gives it authority over the kind of like what the game is. This is the person who's coming in and be like, today there's going to be two group dates and one, 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 one. And then it's hometowns. Get ready. Things are ratcheting up. You need that person. I don't think Caitlin and Tasha are going to do it. Like, I don't think they're going to be good enough at it because they don't have the air of authority. We know they are puppets to the producers reading scripts. We know that. You know who has the ultimate air of authority? Probably the dream scenario. Donald Trump. No. (laughs) (laughs) Zendaya. Ooh, I love that. Then you bring in Gen Z. Love that. I just trust her. You know, I think she can convey that. I agree with you. Authority level. 
I mean, they're going to have to pay her $10 million a season. So I don't, I, that may take yeah, the whole that show, might be but tough. <laughs> great worth idea. it. But I think the, um, the lack of a host right now is putting the show in a strange position and the, the rabid fan base of bachelor nation that is just coming for everybody leaving no stone mm-hmm. unturned. It's a, it's a hard environment to be a player in. And I think that ultimately is something that like, yeah, you might be able to be an influencer if you're, you know, in the top, whatever, but it comes with a cost. You're seeing people drop out of bachelor nation as a result of it. And I don't know, like eventually does that trickle all the way down to people just not wanting to come in in the first place? I don't know. I feel like the state of bachelor nation right now is very precarious and Mm -hmm. Katie Thurston's season is going to be a huge pivotal moment in the history of the game. Which direction does it go after this? And I have no fucking idea. I literally have none. Cause then we also have a paradise coming up after it. That is now we're getting a little bit into Twiven, but certain players have already made alliances and I think the producers don't like There's seeing There's a new that. four horse women in <laughs> <Yeah>. the apocalypse. <laughs> we'll talk about that more on Thursday, but you know, the, the way players are unionizing and stuff and getting together after their seasons is also drastically going to alter what paradise looks like, which is coming up in what, two and a half months or something, three months, we're going to have another fucking paradise. Anyway. Um, no, I was just curious to ask you about the, that element of how we view it specifically, but I think how a lot of people view it too is like, yeah, it's a game and here's all the players and who wins the ring. But there's this other element that is like, what are the producers doing? What is being conveyed to us? How are they handling things like inclusion, diversity, and, and where that piece of it fits into how you watch the show? Mm-hmm. For me, that piece has become much bigger over the course of my viewing, certainly since we started watching it, you know. When we were watching um, Chris Soul's season, and I'm watching him go up in a hot air balloon, and I see the grass poking up from the fucking right. corner of the screen. I'm like, it's a lie! The hot air balloon's not even in the fucking air! That's as far down that rabbit hole as I had gone. And now we're here, doing two podcasts a week, talking about this shit in academic terms. 2.5. 2.5. Sorry. And a and, book. And a book. And that element of it, the, you know, I don't have the naivete anymore about how the fucking sausage is made. And the people making the sausage are as much a part of how I view the game as the game itself. Yeah, I feel like Matt James's season was pretty heavy to watch the whole time. There was not a lot of lighthearted joy like looking at the grass or you know you have brief heather martin with the pizza boxes but even that doesn't doesn't outweigh the other elements at this point for me (laughs) totally look i i don't know how many memes i do per season of this show a bunch hundreds i barely made any memes for matt james's season barely any Because I was just like, this is not fucking fun or funny. It's terrible. We're watching these producers tear this man apart to sell fucking toothpaste and toilet paper. 
And we're all supposed to be like, oh, it's just a fun show. And then you watch them come out. You watch Lord Harrison come out and try to lie about it to defend not Matt James, to defend Rachel Kirkconnell because she wins the ring. He's defending the sanctity of the show itself. The product is what he cares about, not about the person they're fucking wrecking. Mm -hmm. That becomes impossible to enjoy at a frivolous light entertainment <laughs> level and so it, it was just like i couldn't do memes about that season and you know that for me that's like why we started this podcast or why i wanted to or talk about the book or any of that shit is because there is something fun about dissecting the game of it and when mm -hmm. the severity of the maliciousness that is in the show becomes so fucking big that it overshadows everything the fun is gone and that's what I feel like season 25 was. Like you're saying, yeah, Heather Martin had a pizza box on her head and there were some funny lines said and stuff. But even, the, even prior to the Kirkconnell stuff coming out, what the producers were doing by sending in five players to completely yeah. derail the relationships and start bullying accusations and the uh, thing about Brittany Galvin being a sex worker, none of that was fun. It was all just be as mean as you fucking can you all the time. You don't love fake sex worker rumors? What a good no. time. <laughs> yes. The, the big bright highlights of it were like Katie Thurston's dildo, Heather Martin's pizza head. Even the things that like should have been funny. Like there was a moment in the, the forced violence group date where the trainer, that boxer comes out and is like, are you guys ready to fight for Matt James? And there's this shot of Kit Keenan just looking down at the ground going, yay. That was the sentiment of the whole season to me. <laughs> like this faking enthusiasm for this just horrible fucking shit they're putting these people through. And maybe the end of the quarantine seasons will help with that because it does add this element of prison and you know that they've had to be isolated in a in a more intense way than usual. Yeah, it, totally. If you're a player in a normal season, a non-quarantine season, you're fucking flying around to Cleveland. And, no, but you're like, <laughs> you're getting to go on international trips. You're getting to go out on boats and fucking clear blue waters you're getting like beaches all this fucking fantastic stuff and i think even for players like it becomes an easier experience even if they put you uh you know <laughs> in some group in the same room violent situations or yeah or that the psychological trauma becomes lessened by the fact that you're in these beautiful places certainly as a viewer it becomes easier to swallow because of the scenery everything you're getting to see that the more like the functional elements of uh nicer environments and stuff as they relate to the game. I think that's important for some reason. I totally agree with you. I think once we get out of the quarantine, shit is going to be better, but we still have Katie's season. Mm -hmm. That's a quarantine season. It's going to have very familiar vibes to La Quinta, in my opinion, a deserty kind of environment, you know, won't be as hot, but I don't know. I, I just, We've come a long way. We've dug this pit very fucking deep. What has been your highlight of our 
of Game of Roses for you? I don't know. Jesus. The highlight. We've had some very good moments. Selling our book, I think. Yeah. That was like a highlight. It proved to me that we're not crazy, or at least that maybe there's one other person who believes we're crazy <laughs> enough to pay us for this. I have really enjoyed our Patreon and like getting to interact with people on that who are as into this as we are. It's like, it's a nice feeling to know that as deep as we go in the pit, there are other people who are just as deep. Yeah, that is we're like, not alone. <laughs> yeah, it's a comforting feeling because when you are doing this shit, sometimes you get to a point where you're like, you have to ask that question, what in the fuck am I doing? This is absolutely insane. But then you're like, ah, it's not that crazy. It's just like, it's like anything else that people have a really strong fandom of. We're just, we're creating media off of that fandom. Oh, and of course, getting my 30-pound dumbbells from Blake Ellerby. Of course. <laughs> How about yourself? Yeah, I would say the book is, is up there. I would say a highlight for me has been, you know, we started this a little little tape recorder, no segments, very loose, and we've set goals that have happened and we've grown this thing into what it is today we had fucking tyler cameron defining a hooju yeah for a large platform that was one of the really cool moments (laughs) certain players watching our instagram stories where i never thought i'd be making content that these actual players are consuming that has been pretty wild (laughs) Our influence in the game, I would say. Which I believe will be greater and greater. I think so too. I mean, that was always one of our goals. And in the beginning, like you're saying, when it was just you and me talking into a little fucking Zoom recorder on my couch one night, it did not necessarily seem like that would ever actually happen. And now it has. And as you're saying, it's continuing to to grow, certainly. So I'm excited about this next year. I'm excited about God. I mean, as much as we just talked about how the the game is in a weird space, and it's not as fun. I'm like, as soon as I start really thinking about what we have ahead of us, Katie Thurston, Paradise, Michelle Young, Bachelor yeah. 26, almost back to back in every case. I'm like, fuck. We're about to do the best work we've ever done. Our coverage of all of these things is going to be fucking outstanding. And that does excite me. I can't help it. It fucking excites me. It it does. When I think about Katie's night one, I'm like salivating. I can't I wait. I'm just thinking about Blake Moynes as Bachelor season 26. Oh my God. <laughs> it's happening. Get ready. All my predictions are 100% accurate, including that one. That will be pretty amazing if you are able to manifest that. I don't, it's not manifestation. It's that I looked at his Instagram and I saw something. I, I really try to look at, when we do our Instagram things, which by the way, we're going to, in the next few weeks, start doing Katie's guys' Instagrams. I'm just looking at them as a producer would. I try to put myself in the mind of a producer and see what they see. And I'm telling you, I can see the crown. I can see it glowing on their head like a premonition. <laughs> <laughs> That's my highlight is when I got psychic powers, but only for bachelor predictions. <laughs> this is the Goracle. 
You've consulted with the Goracle, and Blake Moines will be the next Bachelor. Hey, I mean, he did his research. We know that he'll at least read books on topics that will help him get ahead in game. Sometimes that's all it takes. But, yeah, I'm, uh, you know, we've come a long way, and I am excited to continue digging the fucking pit with you. And I'm just, like, I'm very excited about what we're about to do in terms of the book, how we're going to cover these next seasons, and fingers crossed, some other big highlights coming in the next few years. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> it's both sinister and exciting, your tone. <laughs> I would argue that my endeavor is also both sinister and exciting. Oh my God. <laughs> You're like, I've relaunched my tape to get on Real World, and actually I'm going to be on one of the seasons. (laughs) I will be a reality star. (laughs) I had my shot as a reality star when me and my friends sold that show Posers. Didn't work out. I think that was my my one short window. But uh, yeah, no, I'm excited about it. And we hope you guys have enjoyed this episode, you know, giving you some history about how we came to be these two maniacs at the bottom of the pit continually digging as deep as we can go. God, it's so fucking strange. But here we yeah, are. Yeah, we've now put ourselves through what we've put all of our guests through. Indeed. Welcome to the pit, Pace only Case. Fair. Welcome, Clues. Thank you. And uh, welcome everyone else who is listening. You are by proxy also down here with us. <laughs> if you've listened yeah. this far, you might You're as well be here. living at the bottom of the pit. And we thank you for joining us down here as always. And we thank you for, uh, you know, everyone who checks out our Patreon for our Monday Night Clues. Lives. Where can and... people find you? What are you trying to promote? <laughs> oh, uh, my Instagram handle is at Bachelor Clues. And uh, my podcast is called Game of Roses. How about you, Pace Case? Uh, you can find me at Pace Case on Instagram and Twitter. Oh, Twitter. I don't really use Twitter, but. i started trying to get back into it this week and i was just like jesus christ this shit is brutal yeah talk about a toxic space i I did not want to get back in but uh no seriously thank you everybody for listening and we'll be back in 48 short hours of course with this week in bachelor nation there's already a lot of stuff that we're gonna have to cover some very big things are happening this week so that should be a fun one and we look forward to seeing you And before we go, as always, what is that dwab at? Oh, you know what? That was another highlight for me, ending the dwab and getting the the dwab. Me too. As as fucking horrible as Matt James' season was, it's like we crossed a line. Like, we can't ever go back to no black bachelors. We can never go back. That at least is good, you know? (laughs) Yes. It has been 6,972 days without an Asian bachelor. Praise be our beloved game. Please rate this podcast. Please review this podcast. Please get a friend to listen to us. And then please rate this podcast. Please review this podcast. 
Please get a friend to listen to us and then please rate this podcast. Please review this podcast. Please get a friend to listen to us and then. Have you ever experienced a dry, itchy scalp or ever wondered why your color isn't lasting as long as your hairdresser promised? Well, unfiltered mineral-filled water could be the reason why. Did you know hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin? And that about 85% of the United States uses hard water filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered showerhead comes in. Known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, Canopy is dermatologist-recommended This unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water. Best of all, the Canopy filtered showerhead is hassle-free, installation's a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement. Go to canopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, Gore listeners can use our code ROSES at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.